2: Coming up on The Cost of Living.
0: This is a shocker, $7.99. So I paid, gotta get my glasses, 96 cents on top of the, the eight bucks.
2: Susan McDonald didn't always look at her grocery bills that carefully. When she did, she didn't like what she saw. Taxes. Hi, I'm Paul Havertrood. welcome to The Cost of Living. If governments want to make life cheaper, and politicians are under a ton of pressure to do just that, here's an idea. Why not cut taxes on food? No GST, HST, PST on groceries? It seems easy peasy, but would it actually help? Also today, 1 in 10 new mortgages in Canada now comes from a so-called alternative lender. And that is a lot of borrowers taking on a lot of risk. Up first, the big two airlines, Air Canada and WestJet, have fought for your travel dollar for years. So what happens if they stop fighting? How did Todd Peterson feel when he heard Air Canada was cutting its flight from Saskatoon to Calgary?
1: I, I was shocked. Like, grieving might be a little bit too strong of a word, but it, it's close. It, it, it hurt that that, that would happen it just right out of the blue. Todd was born and raised in Saskatchewan.
2: He'd been flying Air Canada for years. That quick 90-minute hop to Calgary connected him to the world. So
1: when Air Canada said it would stop flying direct... Like, I I just thought, are you kidding me? Like, it's the gateway to the world for us, right? Like, so many people that live in Calgary are from Saskatchewan, number one. But then from a business standpoint, there's a huge amount of business that happens between, you know, Saskatchewan, and I'm saying Regina and Saskatoon. And then, you know, Calgary, you know, you can fly any places you want to. And then the same thing, people from Calgary want to get to Saskatoon and Regina. So you, you cut the legs out from all those things. He can still fly direct to Calgary on WestJet. But with no Air Canada... It, it's, it can be an extremely high cost. Um, you know, I, I, I myself have seen as high as $1,000 two ways. Uh, some of my friends, and I, you know, I'm just telling you what I've been told, they've seen $1,100 one way, um, you know, on, on short notice. And, 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 and lots of times you, you can't even get a flight.
2: Saskatoon isn't the only place this is happening. Canada's two biggest airlines are making big changes to where they fly. Look at WestJet. The number of seats it's flying in Eastern Canada, compared to pre-pandemic four years ago, is down more than 60%. Air Canada's seat numbers in Western Canada are down by nearly a third. This is according to the analytics firm, Sirium, which tracks data on the airline industry. Now both airlines say, hey, it's not personal, it's strictly business. Costs are up, there's a pilot shortage, and we can't fly everywhere. Not everyone buys that. The Chamber of Commerce in Saskatoon has gone to the Competition Bureau. It claims the airlines are splitting up the country. Westjet in the West, Air Canada in the East. And by not competing on certain routes, they're handing the other one a monopoly. I asked Ambarish Chandra what he makes of this shift in airline competition. From the perspective of the airlines, it makes complete sense. He's a public policy professor at the University
3: of Toronto. They can always do better by carving up the national market between them. And, you know, if both airlines sort of agree to that, then each one can essentially charge high prices by monopolizing their respective markets, not having to worry about competition. So
2: dividing up the country could be good for airline profits. But is it something that would catch the attention of the competition bureau? It hasn't yet said if it thinks there's a case.
3: It raises competition concerns because of course we don't want to see you know one airline dominate any route, right? The moment you have a monopoly on a route, a single airline that serves the route, you're going to see sky-high prices. We've seen that in the past, we st- still see it today on routes where Air Canada for example is the only major player. Uh, So if that happens, it's really bad for competition, for consumers, for national integration, for a whole lot of things.
2: Now, there is a difference between a legit business decision and being truly anti-competitive. Figuring out what crosses the line, like what's actually collusion, isn't always straightforward.
3: There's different kinds of collusion. There's explicit collusion where the firms are literally striking deals, you know, there's phone calls, there's text messages, there's communication. I mean, if we have evidence like that, that's the that's the highest level of evidence. There, there's also other forms, lesser forms of collusion, so-called tacit collusions, where f- firms aren't less, literally talking to each other or communicating, but they're sort of sending signals, engaging in behavior that allows them to, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, sort of agree to Agree to keep prices high or agree to keep output low in order to enjoy profits. If that is what's happening,
2: then to borrow a line from Denzel in training day, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove.
3: Unless it turns out that they met in a you know, smoke-filled room and they came to this, this, this agreement and they hashed out of these details, well, yeah, that would be illegal. That would be clearly against the law. So... First of all, there's a question of whether Westshed is really doing this. Secondly, even if they are doing this, it'd be hard to prove and I'd be surprised if in fact they coordinated with their Canada to come to this conclusion. Had they done so, then sure, that would be illegal. Beyond that, it's difficult for the Competition Bureau to do much, in my opinion, if they've just unilaterally come to this realization that it's just not profitable for them to operate in, in you know in one half of the country.
2: In order to prove something is anti-competitive, you have to meet a high bar. So high, Amberish doubts the Competition Bureau will take on the airlines. And if it did, he says the regulator still doesn't have much bite.
3: The Competition Bureau has no authority to force WestJet to fly a certain route. They can just refuse. They aren't a court, they aren't, um, you know, they don't have any of that sort of legal recourse. If, in fact, the firms are taking baby steps down this road, It's hard to imagine any sort of regulation that can prevent them uh, or force them to serve all the markets.
2: What does this mean for places that are down to one airline option? Amber says that's where the free market comes in. If there's money to be made, another competitor should step in. But there is a hitch. The free market in airlines isn't so free. Foreign carriers aren't allowed to fly from point to point within Canada. A Delta can fly from New York to Toronto, but it can't fly from Toronto to Montreal. It's a rule known as cabotage. The idea is to protect the domestic industry. Say a Delta comes in, pushes WestJet out of business, then decides it's not making enough money, so it leaves. Canada and other countries don't want airlines blowing in when times are good and blowing out when they're bad. Canada also limits foreign ownership of airlines, so Delta can't just start a Canadian carrier. Of course, the feds could change these rules, open up the skies to more competition,
3: If you ask Canadians, they say airline prices are too high. They're right. Domestic airline prices are scandalously high compared to the U.S., compared to Europe. It's cheaper to fly from Toronto to Europe than it is to fly to Vancouver in many cases. We know we pay very high prices. We don't have much competition. That's the reason we pay high prices. And so I've long argued that we might consider liberalizing our markets and allowing foreign airlines to enter, either explicitly allowing foreign airlines to fly within Canada or raising the foreign ownership gaps. It's, it's, a, it's a non-starter, though. There's no government in Canada that's going to go down that road. And I think the reason is they know that the moment they start to open that up, there'll be headlines saying, oh, you know, Can- Canada's airline market sells out to the U.S.
2: So don't hold your breath. But Ambrish does think letting in foreign airlines would mean lower prices. As for domestic competition, there is some good news. Porter... Flair, Lynx are all getting bigger and flying way more passengers. Eventually, they could expand into routes left behind by Air Canada and WestJet. But that's also not happening tomorrow.
3: I mean, there's plenty of underserved markets in Canada. There's plenty of markets, plenty of small towns that you know see very little service, maybe one flight a day to, to a big city, and you take what you get.
2: So if you're in one of these markets and you're looking for a move to make, maybe someone to blame, is there anything to do?
3: I know we all want to look around for a villain to, and maybe there are villains in the story, but I, we want to look around for a solution for someone to take action and for there to be consequences. And in this case, it's not obvious to me there is. This, this market might just be underserved and might remain underserved as long as market forces don't make it profitable for these airlines to fly them.
2: Wow, that that is unsatisfying.
3: Yeah, it is unsatisfying.
2: It may not feel great, but in the airline business, like the song says, it's their planes, and they'll fly where they want to. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Ever hear about someone having a perfect credit score? A gold-plated credit rating means you stroll into a marble-floored bank, get shown into an office, offered sparkling water. It's nice. Then you get to borrow money at the cheapest possible rate. If you don't have good credit, you don't get the sparkling water. You get shown the door. This is where alternative lenders come in. Our producer Daniel Nerman finds more Canadians are going to these lenders of last resort and paying for the privilege.
4: Steve Davey buys old houses in Ontario, fixes them up, then sells them for a profit. He only gets paid when the job's done. I'll
5: know when I'm close to being finished when I have to take my shoes off. because I don't want to get the house dirty and then get it ready for a sale.
4: But one time, a reno took longer and cost more than expected. And Steve racked up a lot of debt on his credit card. His bank wouldn't renew his mortgage. So he went to an alternative lender.
5: Um, as a first time doing it, I felt like it was a little bit of a uh, subcategory You know, kind of like you were in a a beggar's lineup or something.
4: Alternative lenders go by all sorts of names. Mortgage investment entities. Unregulated lenders. Non-banks. They're private lenders, so they don't follow the same rules as banks and credit unions.
6: They will not be looking at the same things.
4: Tanya Barasa Ochoa is a senior economist with Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation.
6: So they'll mostly be looking at your cash flow, so your ability to be able to pay every month, but also the value uh, of the property. But they won't be looking at your debt, they won't be looking at your credit score. And so these lenders are actually offering an opportunity to get a mortgage loan if you're not able to get one with a conventional or traditional lender.
4: They give Canadians who are self-employed, have bruised credit or no credit, a way into the housing market. And their clientele is growing. Over the last few years, increased regulation like the mortgage stress test has made it harder for buyers to qualify. Banks need proof you can cover your payments if interest rates go up. Non-banks don't. This is why, according to the CMHC, alternative lenders have become a bigger player in Canada's mortgage industry. About 1 in 10 new mortgages are now with private lenders. The catch? Alternative lenders charge higher interest rates. Like, way higher. I'm just going to pull the
6: numbers. Right now, we're looking at approximately... Between 8 to 12, even in some cases, it could go up to
4: 16, 17 percent. A mortgage with a 17 percent interest rate? Yikes!
6: Most of them are also interest-only loans. So what you pay every month is only your interest rates, but you won't be paying down the capital on your loan. So it is a product that is typically meant
4: for a short term. So we're talking one or two years, enough time to repair or build up your credit so that you can switch to a traditional mortgage with a lower interest rate. But Barrasa Ochoa says the bar to qualify with a bank has been raised so high, people are getting stuck. Mortgages renewed with alternative lenders are also growing.
6: That is definitely a risk. And if we look at just overall in Canada, we have very, very high levels of household debts. And the three quarters of that is mortgages,
4: basically. But for Steve Davey, who is constantly buying and selling houses, renewing with an alternative lender has worked, even when the interest rate on his mortgage was higher than the bank.
5: I'll tell you, I've done a 10% mortgage for one year on a house, but I doubled that house's value in that one year. So tell me if that was smart. I wouldn't have had the opportunity without the 10% mortgage.
4: As for his next home purchase?
5: Um, So my goal would be no bank because I'll be mortgage free.
4: Now that is smart. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman. Hello, I'm Jess Milton.
2: This is the Cost of Living. I'm Paul Habershud. Susan McDonald didn't used to count her pennies. But then, inflation, she started spending way more pennies. And started noticing stuff she hadn't before.
0: This is a shocker. $7.99. So I paid... Gotta get my glasses. 96 cents on top of the, the eight bucks. Um, so those wings or whatever, now they charge me tax on those. So I paid GST on those, which I didn't think I would. Is food, right?
2: Yes, Ottawa and the provinces get a cut of our grocery bills. We do pay tax on some
7: food. But Jennifer Keene, could life be more affordable if we didn't? Sure. In British Columbia, where Susan lives, she's paying sales tax on some of those grocery items. And we've seen the cost of groceries go up pretty quickly in this country. According to Dalhousie's food price report, a family of four will spend more than $16,000 on food this year. You know, I've done stories
2: on that report before. And the last time I think I remember the number was more like 12,000.
7: Oh, yeah. I know. It, it. It's going up more than $1,000 every year. So people like Susan are looking at their bills with a more critical eye.
0: You know, the government is always going on about how they're trying to get the prices lowered and, you know, sending you some sort of a rebate or whatever it is. But then sneakily doing this, you know, charging tax on some of these things that people don't even have a clue that, that's happening. It's like you're giving giving them one hand and then taking it away from on the other. So it's 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 not helping at all. Not helping at all. Sneakily.
7: <laughs> well, you know how sometimes you have to look pretty closely at the bill to see which items have been taxed and which are not.
2: You do. But do we know how much money the government collects on these taxes?
7: Yes. Canadians paid roughly $1.5 billion in tax on food from the grocery store in 2021, which is the most recent year we have data.
2: That's a chunk of change. But just to be clear here, Jen, we only pay tax on some groceries.
7: That's right. Some are taxed. Most are not. Do we know why? Well, to explain that, Paul, we have to jump in the hot tub time machine. You want to come? Yeah. So it was the late 80s. All of my jackets had shoulder pads. Brian Mulroney was prime minister, and his government was planning to bring in the GST to replace the old manufacturer's sales tax. It was tough going at the time.
8: It was very challenging politically when uh, the government decided to implement a GST. Even though it was uh, more efficient to the economy, it would likely decrease the the taxation on uh, most uh, consumption
7: Ivan Ozai is an associate professor of law at Osgoode Hall in Toronto. He teaches a course on consumption taxes, and he says the GST is like it's a classic value-added tax paid by the consumer. So it could have applied to all groceries, but...
8: People were not very happy about it because the previous tax that we had before uh, was somewhat hidden. Uh, and so the government, for, to, to be able to politically implement a GST, had to make some concessions. And one of those was, we're not going to be taxing basic groceries.
7: So the government said, OK, OK, we won't tax all food. We'll just tax some food. Then they had to come up with rules around what was a basic grocery and what wasn't.
2: And how did they decide? Like a basic grocery is?
7: Meat, dairy, produce, you know, staple items. Now, the foods that are taxed are like candies, some bakery items, salty snacks, all, you know, basically all the good stuff we like to eat on the couch. I
2: don't like the sounds of
7: that. <laughs> how did they figure out that the good stuff was the stuff that was going to be taxed? Essential versus non-essential, I guess. And, but the rules can seem kind of arbitrary, like chips are a snack, but crackers are not. Again, how do you draw the line here? How
2: do you figure out what's what? Like, what about a crisper?
7: Crisper is a chip, not a cracker. The taxman has ruled on that.
2: (laughs) Okay, I would debate Revenue Canada, but sure, they have feelings about salty snacks. What else? Okay,
7: well, remember Susan said she paid tax on her chicken wings? And that's because they were prepared. Anything you can consume as a meal immediately is taxable, which has led to some really interesting debates in the grocery world.
8: So one of them is, for example, uh, if you buy vegetables in uh, the grocery store, you are not taxed. But if you buy a salad, a salad is taxed. But then what's the difference between vegetables and salad? What about those uh, pre-packed, packaged salads where you have, you don't have the actual salad, but you have the vegetables, but also the sauce together. Is that a salad or is that vegetable plus a sauce?
2: This is like an existential question. When is a salad just a bunch of vegetables?
7: I don't know. That very question went to court over 20 years ago, believe it or not. And a judge ruled that a salad kit is not prepared food because you still have to cut open that little dressing packet, you know, pour it on the greens. Some nights you're tired, that feels like enough cooking. <laughs> it is in my house. So so this means that a prepared salad in a container that you could just eat, that's taxed. But a salad kit is not.
2: Okay, so we have rules. We've figured out what's taxed and what's not. But the bottom line right now, Jen, is life is expensive. And we know politicians are feeling it. They're hauling grocery chain CEOs onto Parliament Hill. They're saying, hey, you got to do something about food prices there is pressure out there to do something about affordability.
7: And and some provincial politicians are saying, hey, maybe we should look to our own house. The idea of reducing some taxes on food uh, has come up in elections in Manitoba and Ontario. And in Saskatchewan, the NDP finance critic, Trent Weatherspoon is calling on the government to drop all provincial sales tax on groceries.
2: You know, we think it's unfair uh, that uh, a family stopping in to the grocery store that might be picking up a rotisserie chicken for example to take home to their family or uh, possibly help prepare some some of the lunches the next day are subjected to both both taxes on that front this is not the first time rotisserie chicken has come up on the show
7: <laughs> we do love our rotisserie chickens we
2: do <laughs> and I guess it probably speaks to the fact that you know people do stop at the store on the way home from work and pick up a chicken absolutely just look at how
7: much bigger that prepared food section is at the grocery store today compared to 30 years ago. Like we're, we're busy people. And, and Trent Weatherspoon thinks these rules that were devised back in 1990 about what's prepared food and why it's taxable and other food isn't, they just don't make sense anymore.
8: I think the way the the fact that food's taxed in Canada in this way, and that
2: um, we have provincial governments like that in Saskatchewan that have piled on with that tax, it's it's just really wrong, and it's uh, it's about placing a heavy burden on um, hardworking families and people and seniors, um, and it's the wrong way to go. So he wants to drop the PST on groceries, but would this actually help with affordability?
7: It seems like it's a no-brainer, but we can't say for sure that it would. Ivan Ozai says, even if you dropped grocery taxes tomorrow, there are no guarantees.
8: It's not something certain that reduction is going to actually reach consumers, right? Because uh, you reduce the tax rate, but then what may happen is that retailers may just keep the, the, the price or increase the price so as to absorb the benefits from the tax reduction. So whatever policy was behind reducing tax rates for a given product uh, will end up maybe not benefiting the final consumer.
2: So you can cut grocery taxes, but then maybe the retailer doesn't pass through the savings. It just kind of pockets a difference and makes a little more money.
7: It just goes to show how complicated the issue of food prices is and how there's no simple answer to bringing them down. When you've got, all these factors driving costs, rising energy prices, global conflicts. Taxes play a small part in it, but not the biggest part. They're just low hanging fruit. So a tax holiday may help with affordability, but not necessarily. Not necessarily. Hmm. Thanks, Jen. You're welcome.
2: Coming up on next week's Halloween edition of The Cost of Living, a look at prime real estate from beyond the grave, or actually not beyond the grave, just the grave. It's sort of like buying a house. (laughs) Location, location, location. So it could be an updated bungalow close to downtown or your forever plot six feet under. Prime real estate is prime real estate and it'll cost you. That's next week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keen with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Havershrood. Thanks for listening.